Yeah, Romans chapter 12. You turn your Bibles there. This evening I'm going to speak on the topic of a life of worship. I spoke this morning on uh, singing and praying to our triune God. Did you notice a difference as you're singing tonight? Were you aware of some of the, oh, oh, the Father, oh, the Son, oh, the Spirit? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, years ago, I attended a small group uh, retreat for leaders of small groups. And uh, during one meeting, I found myself overwhelmed by a sense of God's love for me uh, while I was singing to him. And it, it literally brought me to tears. I was, I was just so moved. And uh, f- for a number of minutes, I was just completely undone. I could barely, barely sing. And oblivious to everyone around me, but I was just having an encounter with God. As a result of that retreat, uh, something happened to me. I, I didn't know exactly what had happened to me. I just knew I wanted more of what had just happened to me. And I remember thinking, this is what I was made for. To be at the feet of my God, worshiping Him, singing to Him, giving Him praise. And over the next few days, I found myself, I found myself singing all the time. Uh, our oldest son, Jordan, had just been born. And I remember being up at night with him in the middle of the night and just wanting to sing, thinking, oh, I'm glad he's up because I can sing. And it was really odd. Uh, Whenever I, I worship God in song with a group, I, w- I remember just jumping and, you know, just, yes, yes. It was just, it was just this constant stream of a desire to, to, to worship God. But it wasn't, it wasn't too long, maybe a week or so, before I realized something, something was wrong. Be- because, like, I'd be walking through a shopping mall, and I'd be wanting to worship God and and then some song would come over. I'd walk into a store and some song would be blaring, and I couldn't worship God there because I couldn't sing. And it was, so I'd have to walk out into the, the, the hallway and, and there'd be more music playing and I couldn't worship God there either. And it, it occurred to me that one of two things was, was going on. Either, either God didn't expect me to worship Him all the time or else my understanding of worship was wrong. And happily, I determined it was the second. That my understanding of what it meant to worship God was very narrow. It was very precious, but it was very narrow. Now, when when we talk about a life of worship, for some of us that means... Well, gosh, I just need to listen to more Matt Redman or more Chris Tomlin or more Sovereign Grace music or something. I, I just I need to get more of that in my life, and that's what that's how I can have a life of worship. And that's not exactly what we're talking about. Um, some of us might think we need to pursue a musically inspired state of intimacy with God, and those are good things. Any of us experienced those just a few minutes ago, where we're just just enjoying God together. And it's, it's so good. But is that what we're supposed to be doing all the time? You know, dear, can you take out the trash? No, I'm worshiping the Lord. Uh, you know, can you change the baby's diapers? No, I'm worshiping the, definitely worshiping the Lord. <laughs> is, is, is that, well, you can see it's, it's a problem to understand worship as simply Singing songs to God. So, so what is worship? Well, the best place to learn about worship is from God's Word, and we're going to look at one particular passage tonight. But I want to just talk about it broadly for a few moments. The word that we translate worship in our Bibles, Old and New Testament, refers to the physical gesture, implies at least a physical gesture of bowing down or bending over before a superior, someone who is is higher than you, someone who's exalted over you. It communicates an attitude of humility and submission and reverence. 
There's one word in the Hebrew, hishtachava, and one word in the Greek, proskuneo, that, that both mean that. And that's the, that's, that's, that's the most common word that we translate English into English as worship. Now, there are other words that we translate worship that have to do with serving. Serving. Can you believe it? Serving as worship. And it referred to either the priests serving in the tabernacle or God's people serving him in daily life. So that's another way to think of worship, bowing down in humility and submission or, or serving. And then a third set of words communicates a sense of fearing God, of holding him in awe. But none of the words that we translate worship are immediately connected with music. Don't you think that's odd? I thought that was very odd when I found it out. It's only when we read the Psalms that a strong musical connection is made. But there, we don't see the words typically used for worship. So God definitely wants us to praise Him in song. But when it comes to worship, He's thinking something much bigger, something much broader, something that involves reverence and submission and serving and awe. And when God wants to sum up the appropriate attitude he wants us to have towards him, he says this in Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's how God wants his people to relate to him. And that's what we call worship. Because what we love supremely is what we worship. What we want more than anything is what we worship. What we think will satisfy us more than anything is what we worship. And when I worship something, I exalt it above me to the extent that I want it, I pursue it, and I end up submitting myself to it, whatever it is. What I worship governs my thoughts and my actions. It rules my affections and my emotions. It's everything about me. A man named Harold Best has said, At this very moment, and for as long as this world endures, everybody inhabiting it is bowing down and serving something or someone, an artifact, a person, an institution, an idea, a spirit, or God through Christ. Everybody everywhere, at every time, is worshiping something. So when someone says, I want to have a life of worship, I want to live a life of worship, actually we already are. We're already living lives of worship. Everybody is living a life of worship. Materialists worship their stuff. They just want more stuff. Just whatever stuff they have, it's it's not enough. They want more stuff because they worship it. They desire it, they pursue it, and ends up controlling them. Rationalists worship their minds. They worship the way they think. Remember having a conversation with someone and saying, do you value the, which do you put higher, the Bible or your mind? And they answered, my mind. I've got to prove the Bible. Well, You know, if the Bible was really God's revelation to us, I can guarantee you, you're not going to get it all. If it's God communicating himself to us, we're just not going to get it all. So it's a bad idea to exalt your mind, to worship your mind. Hedonists worship their pleasure. Just whatever brings me pleasure, whatever makes me happy, that's what I want. Hardcore environmentalists worship nature, mother nature. Trees, rocks, mountains, streams, that's what they live for. That's what they bow down to. And atheists, even atheists worship. They worship themselves. They say, I'm the ultimate cause. I value myself above 
everything. So the question isn't whether or not we're going to live a life of worship. The question is, where is your worship directed? Where is your worship pointed? Because worship doesn't begin, it's aimed. We aim our worship. Our hearts are always worshiping something. And so it's with that backdrop that we want to look at just two verses from Romans 12. Because Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, tell us what kind of worship God is looking for. And here we're going to see that a godly life is a life of worship, but it's a worship that involves four specific things. We're going to learn that the worship that pleases God has a specific source, a specific response, that there's a specific battle involved, and there's a specific result. So let's read it. I will read it to you, for you. This is Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. It's the sufficient, infallible, authoritative Word of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, Father, we ask you to help us hear what you are saying to us by your Spirit, through your Word. We ask that Jesus be exalted in our minds, in our hearts, in our wills, that we might serve you with great joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, what's the source of worship that pleases God? The source of, where does it begin? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The source of worship that pleases God is the mercies of God. Not just mercy, but mercies. The mercies of God. It's a word that lets us know that God's mercy can't be described in one way. There are abundant mercies. There are 10,000 reasons to bless the Lord. I love that song. So glad we started with that this morning. 10,000 reasons for my heart to find. It's not as though God has a limited supply of mercies. We come to Him, Lord, I need mercy. I'm sorry, I just ran out. Just give to that guy over there. I just have no more to give. Always has mercies. We may not see them, but they're there. The Lord's mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, it says in Lamentations. Every time we reach our destination safely, every time a child is born healthy, every time we take a breath, it's mercy. But there is one mercy that stands above them all and from which all other mercies flow. And Paul has just spent the first 11 chapters expositing that mercy. And that's why he says, I appeal to you, brothers, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in light of all that I've said, I appeal to you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is what Paul has been telling the Romans and what, what God is telling us. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone. Everyone. Doesn't matter how good they look on the outside, doesn't matter how rich they are, doesn't matter how politically influential they are, doesn't matter how smart they are, everyone has fallen short of the glory of God because they sinned. We've rebelled against our Maker, worshiping the creature rather than the Creator. And we are worthy of eternal Punishment. Paul makes this case in Romans 1, 2, and 3. Everyone's mouth will be shut before God. There will be no defense. There is no defense. Oh, but what about the innocent? No one is innocent. 
No one has not sinned. Everyone is guilty. That's why God, in His great mercy, provided a Savior, Jesus Christ, who satisfied divine justice through His one atoning death. And He brought peace with God to everyone who trusts in Him. And then he says in Romans 5, God showed his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we've been freed from the power of sin and the condemnation of the law. And now nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And now God is sovereignly and surely redeeming a people for himself who will be a demonstration of his mercy forever. For salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy, Romans 9.16. Jews and Gentiles alike have been shown mercy for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God every other religion in the world involves earning the favor of a God being worshipped except one Christianity. It begins with receiving mercy. That's where our worship begins, receiving mercy. That's the basis and the source of our worship. Mercy describes God's attitude towards us, especially as it relates to our helplessness and our misery. That's what mercy answers. We're unable to please God, and we're in a terrible condition. So God shows us mercy. We were lost. We were enemies. We were hopeless. We deserved judgment. He gave us mercy. We deserved damnation. He gave us mercy. I remember one of my sons, after he was converted saying regularly, I should be in hell, and I'm not. God saved me. And I used to think, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's rather graphic, isn't it? It's true. It's true. We should be in hell. We've received mercy. And if we don't start with the mercy of God, we won't be able to worship God in a way that pleases Him and honors Him. If we don't start with the mercies of God, worship, and this is so strange, worship becomes a means of earning God's favor. And you see that sometimes when people gather together to worship God in the narrow sense, feeling like they have to do enough of something to get to God. Remember one time I was at a conference and we met the n- one night and the next morning the head of the conference said, you know, last night a window to heaven was opened and we didn't make it through. <laughs> I thought, wow. Julie was there too. I thought, okay, like uh, any tips on what we can do this time? Uh, are you going to help us with this? Or, but it was just a, just, you know, try harder, do more, do better. That's not biblical worship. Biblical worship is you will never be able to do anything that will get you into God's presence. But Jesus has gone there before you on your behalf. And when you trust in him, you can come boldly into God's presence. And it's not based on how prepared you are or how well you planned or how sincere you are or how much effort you're putting into it. It's based on faith in God's mercy. 
begins with mercy. That's the source. If we don't start with the mercies of God, we will miss the greatest reason we have to worship God, which is the giving of His Son for us. And we will quickly become like the Pharisee in Luke 18, whose prayer was, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And it's so easy for us to drift into that, especially if we've been a Christian a while. Oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like those poor, ugly, yucky sinners. And God looks at, it, says, looks at us and says to us, have you forgotten my mercy? It's the view of this mercy that is the source of our worship of God. And it's why we sing so many songs about Jesus Christ and what he accomplished through his death and resurrection. We come to God through his mercy or we don't come to him at all. So I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. That's the source of our worship. Let's let's look at the response of worship. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So, so Paul says, we've seen his mercies. Now, what are we to do? What are we to do in response to that? Well, here's what we're to do. We're to present our bodies as living sacrifices. Well, well what does that mean? Present our bodies as living sacrifices. Sacrifices. Well, one of the things it means is that our worship is total. It's complete. It involves everything. We no longer come to God to give him something that's outside ourselves. We don't give God bulls and rams and sheep. We give him, we give him our lives. We don't just drop our money in the plate and think we've worshipped God. We don't just sing a song and think we've worshipped God. We don't give God an hour a week and call that worship. We worship God with our bodies. And he's, Paul is specifically addressing some, some teachers of his time that looked down on the body and saw it as irrelevant when it came to the pursuit of true spirituality. Those who had said, well, you just, you just need to kind of get out of the body. You need to not think about the body. Paul says, no, 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 no. This is how you respond in worship to God, with your bodies. What we do with our bodies matters. You know, some people say it's, they'll draw distinctions about how we're to respond to God. And they'll say things like, well, you know, we need to be more concerned about the poor than we are concerned about what people do in their bedrooms. That's something they say in the States. Or fighting injustice is more important than worrying about whether or not someone swears or gets drunk. God says it all matters. What we do with our bodies matters. We can't make those kinds of distinctions because God doesn't. We're to present our bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and acceptable to God. Now, Right here, Paul is using language that the Jews had used for centuries to describe temple worship. So, right, this is still the first century. There's still a temple around. Paul's using that kind of terminology that would have been a shock to his readers. Because to offer a sacrifice is something only a priest could do. Not, not just anybody. Only a priest could do that. Holy... When he uses the word holy, that referred to the unblemished animals that people were supposed to bring for their sacrifices. Even the word acceptable brings to mind the acceptable aroma that incense would bring before God. And the word worship, at the end of verse 1, this is your spiritual worship, is a Greek word that was most commonly used to describe the priest's service at the temple. Not proskuneo, but letergos. So it's different. So it's just all this temple terminology. And Paul's taking all that and saying, okay, I'm going to give a new meaning to this now. Now it's about your life. Even in the Old Testament, God never intended that his people confine worship to one place, one space, one time, even at the temple. Worship that pleased God wasn't restricted to certain actions or forms or rituals. 
those were meant to encourage a life of worship that honored God in all respects. And the purpose of the Mosaic law was to detail what that looked like. So it's interesting. As the corporate worship of Israel declined, it was both reflective of an inducement towards the decline of holy living among the people. So there was this connection, as there is today. When our corporate worship isn't full of the gospel, isn't full of life, isn't full of God's word, it's very likely that our lives aren't either. But God intends them to go together. But he never intended that the only worship that we give him be in a room when we gather. And now, in the New Testament, there's an even stronger move away from identifying meetings and rituals as all there is to worship. Jesus made it possible for all of life to be experienced as worship in spirit and truth. That's why he says to the Samaritan woman in John 4, the Father is seeking worshipers. Worshipers, not acts of worship, not feelings of worship, but worshipers. Worshippers. And now, through his once and for all sacrifice, we can do everything in life as an offering through his sacrifice that is pleasing and acceptable to God. So at one point, Paul says evangelism is worship. He says in Romans 1.9, how he served or worshiped God with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son. Giving good, doing good to others is worship, says in Hebrews 13, 15. Giving is worship. Paul referred to financial gifts as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So the life of worship we offer to God can't be confined to what we do on Sunday mornings. can't be confined to what we do in a room, which is why I, I often talk about a singing rather than worshiping, because we want to think of worship as what we were doing today in the scavenger hunt. Well, that can't be worship. What are you talking about? Oh, yes, it can be. Yeah. If we're doing what we do as an opportunity to serve others, to enjoy the grace of God in others, to build up others, that is an act of worship to God. Now, if we're whining, complaining about not winning the trophy, and that's not an act of worship. It is an act of worship. I'm sorry, Dave, I didn't mean to look at you. I don't know what I was thinking. It is an act of worship, but not to God. It's an act of worship to ourselves, to our own idols. Worship includes the ordinary, mundane things we do and say every day. Studying can be an act of worship. It really changes things. How can studying be an act of worship? Well... You can be seeking to do well in your course for the glory of God so that you might be able to serve others more effectively. You might be wanting to use your mind in the way that God intended it to be used as an offering to him through Jesus Christ. Eating can be an act of worship. For some people it's always an act of worship, but not in a good sense. It can be an act of worship towards God. We can eat thanking God for the goodness of of different flavors and tastes, different colors, the way people can prepare food so well. I regularly am worshiping God for the food I eat in my home that Julie prepares. It's a gift from God. Helping a friend out, cleaning, driving, changing a diaper, relating to our parents and children, friends and those we meet, all those things can be a response to the mercy we've received that we use to draw attention to the God who has shown us mercy. It's a life. We present our bodies as a living sacrifice. No part of our lives, intellects, minds, or emotions, or wills, or souls have been unaffected by God's mercy. Everything is meant to be a response to God's mercy. And then he says something interesting at the end of verse 1. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, some versions translate that reasonable worship. Because the word it's translating is logikos, which, from which we get the word logic. 
And Paul's saying that yielding ourselves to God in worship involves our minds and our intellects. It's not mechanical. It's not rote. It's not automatic. That's, that's why we want to do these things consciously. Because we've received mercy. And every moment is an opportunity to respond to God with gratefulness in the things we're doing and give him glory for it. But, but our worship is reasonable as well. It makes sense because the Son of God has come to show us extraordinary mercy. It's extraordinary. And if we don't respond to that by presenting our lives to him, we're foolish. It's unreasonable. It's illogical. It doesn't make sense. That's why we want to keep his mercies in view. Because a small savior will elicit worship that is small, partial, erratic, worship that is half-hearted. A great savior who has shown us extraordinary mercy, elicits worship that is comprehensive, constant, and wholehearted. If we see the kind of mercy we've received, we will want to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God and we'll say, what else can we do? That's the response of worship. And there's a battle of worship that's going on Do not be conformed to this world, we read in verse 2, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed to this world. Worshiping God is not easy in one sense. It's not. It's a fight against the world. It's a fight against the flesh. It's a fight against the devil. It's a fight against our minds. The world, really meaning this age, and whether we're in Sydney or the States or India or China or Hong Kong, wherever we are, there is a culture that is seeking to make us like itself, to tie us into what is irrelevant, transient, temporal, and seen rather than what is solid, eternal, and unseen. It's trying to pull us in. And too often we're ignorant to what's going on. We just assume, well, this is just the way people live. And we just want to be like the people around us. This is just the way we live. And, and we don't realize the world's trying to conform us to itself. Its values. Its perspectives. Its goals. And so advertisers bombard us with the world's ideas of what is meaningful and what is worth pursuing. Things like power, sexiness, beauty, flawlessness, athletic prowess, wealth, pleasure, independence, self-sufficiency, control. They're saying these things are what you need to be about. You need to live for these things. And they're usually telling you that if you buy what we offer, you will get those things. And sometimes they're just really ridiculous connections. You know, if you use the right toothpaste, you'll have a happy marriage. I don't think that's... It's it's a little more complicated than that. A little deeper. But that's, that's how advertisers work. They say, we're going we're gonna to get you to think that something's really, really important and you need it. And that you can get it if you buy what we're selling you. The world fights to squeeze us into its mold, as one translation puts it. To make us conform to its thinking, selling us a million lies about God about others, about our world, and about ourselves. Sometimes it's, it's overt. It's screaming to us. More often, it's, it's really subtle. We, we hardly notice it. It's suggesting, prodding, alluring, persuading, 
contrasting, smiling, teasing, drawing us to worship anything but God. Anything. doesn't matter. doesn't matter what it is. And it's a battle we face every day. So, so how do we fight the battle? Well, we offer our sacrifices. We offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God in the midst of a hostile world. We're being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And how does that renewing take place? Well, the renewing takes place primarily through looking intently and thoughtfully and carefully at God's word and the gospel. We look at the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's another passage that uses the same word transformation. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. It says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We're transformed as we behold the glory of the Lord in his word and in the gospel. And that, that's what's taking place as we sing songs, as we hear the word preached. We're gazing into God's word. We're getting our minds renewed. We're reminding ourselves of what God has said, what God has done, who Jesus is, who we are. And our minds are being transformed so we can fight against the world. But it can also take place as we read and study and meditate on Scripture and the gospel on our own. As we reflect on them, as we ingest them into our lives and treasure them in our hearts. We will never know God too well through his word. Unless we're avoiding responsibilities, we will never spend time wrongly seeking God in his word. A number of years ago, I think it was 12 now, I was a pastor in a church, and we were changing translations. We were switching from the New International Version to the English Standard Version. And we told the church we're going to read through the Bible in a year. And I thought, that's a great idea, because I had never read through the Bible in a year. And I thought, since I was one of the pastors, I should probably do it in integrity. So I took my Bible, my ESV Bible, had 1,200 pages, and I said, okay, every time I sit down and read my Bible, I'm going to read six pages. Because I've, I've, I tried to read the Bible through a year, and usually got, like, when I got to Leviticus, it was just over. It's just like, wow, really? This is in the Bible? Wow. And so I'd just go to Psalms or New Testament somewhere. So, so believe it or not, I finished the Bible in Ten months. So I couldn't believe it. I, how did I do that? Well, it was the grace of God. I tried something I didn't think I'd be able to finish. And God said, okay, I'll give you grace for that. You know, I so enjoyed it, I read through it again. I think I um, took the uh, For the Love of God by D.A. Carson. It's wonderful help to studying the Bible. It says two volumes. So I read through one, then I read through another. And then I think I read through... Uh, the Reformation Study Bible. I just, I just couldn't get enough because I was starting to realize I really don't know the Bible that well. Which meant I didn't really know God that well. I just thought if God revealed himself to us through this book that people have given their lives for, what, what part of it is unimportant? And I thought a lot of parts of it were unimportant. <laughs> Because I never read them. And there are parts that you will read more often than others. Let me, let, let's all acknowledge this. If our mar- minds aren't being renewed by the Word of God, they're being renewed by something else. And that something else may be as, as simple and unpretentious as some TV shows that we watch consistently or websites that we visit visit regularly, or Facebook that we're on constantly, or 
This could be any number of things. It doesn't have to look like the devil. This could look very normal. But the question is, are we fighting the battle or are we giving in to the enemy? This is where our minds are renewed. And it's, it's our response. It's our response to God's mercy as we fight the battle that is being waged against us. Battling the world doesn't mean we give up everything related to our culture. We can still use iPhones, still use technology, still go to movies, still shop in the mall. doesn't mean we separate ourselves completely from our culture, but it does mean we are completely against the aims and values of a godless culture. And we are seeking to have our minds renewed and do everything we can to be worshipers of God in Jesus Christ. So there's a battle going on. And we face that battle. We deal with that battle by being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And lastly, there's an effect of our worship. We have seen the mercies of God. We presented our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Our minds are being transformed. And then he says that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable Imperfect. The effect of living in light of God's mercies, presenting our bodies to God and having our minds renewed, is the ability to discern what really pleases God, what His good, acceptable, and perfect will is. You know, so many times, so many people I talk to, we're, we're wondering what God's will is. What is God's will? We wonder about what school to apply for, who we should marry, whether or not a relationship is the right one, whether or not to take a job. And Paul is saying, God is saying to us, the way we know those things, the way we will discern those things is to worship God through Jesus Christ with our lives. As we seek to bring him glory through our lives, we will through testing, discern what is the will of God, what His good, acceptable, and perfect will is. It's only when we, in light of God's mercies, present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God that we will understand why pursuing emotional or physical intimacy with an unbeliever is harmful. Apart from that, what makes sense? We'll find all kinds of justifications for it. But when our worship is right, we'll get it. We'll say, oh yeah, I can't do that. I, I can't. That's not worshiping God with my body. I, I can't do that. Only when our worship is right will we appreciate that spending hours every day on video games and scouring Facebook isn't what we were created for. Otherwise, it won't make any difference. You just think, well, yeah, this is fine. I enjoy it. Oh, are the mercies of God in view? Have you seen them? And are you presenting your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God? Is your mind being renewed? Well, then you'll see it. Then you'll see what the will of God is. Only when our worship is right will we see that investing time and energy into our church and our family and the scriptures and missions and acts of mercy is far superior to breathlessly running after the applause of others. And I just want to commend you all as, as a church for, for seeing that. Just your love for one another. Your service of one, your joyful service of one another, it's so inspiring. It so evidences the grace of God. But we only get there in view of God's mercies, presenting our bodies as living sacrifices. I don't see people here saying, well, yeah, I just don't want to serve. I mean, I've done my part. Just see person after person after person. Oh, what can I do? What can I do? Oh, I'll do that. Oh, I'll do that. It's, it's the grace of God on your lives. So thank you for your example. Only when our worship is right will we see that laying down our life for our friends and our spouse or children and others brings greater joy than buying as much as you can, owning as much as you can. It's not wrong to own things. It's wrong to worship them. It's wrong to live our lives for them. There was an artist, a musician named Katie Hudson, who recorded a Christian album in 2001 with these lyrics. For he'll prevail in the midst of all my trials and tribulations, 
And he'll prevail in the midst of all my sin and temptations. He'll prevail when I fall and he will pick me up. For time and time again, my faith won't fail. Time and time again, my faith won't fail. 2001, Katie Hudson. Katie Hudson became Katy Perry a few years later and exploded on the pop music scene with the song, I Kissed a Girl and I Liked It. She's a platinum recording artist, the only artist besides Michael Jackson to have five number one singles on the same album. In an October interview, Katie said, I still believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But I also believe in extraterrestrials and that there are people who are sent from God to be messengers and all sorts of crazy stuff. I look up into the sky and I'm just mine something. All the stars and planets, the never-endingness of the universe, I just can't believe that we're the only polluting population. Every time I look up, I know that I'm nothing and there's something way beyond me. But I don't think it's as simple as heaven and hell. Actually, it is as simple as heaven and hell. There is a heaven. There is a hell. And the choices we make about what we worship will determine where we end up. What's to keep us from going the way of Katy Perry and millions of others? It's an important question. Keeping God's mercies in view. Keeping God's mercies in view. Remembering Jesus Christ who left his throne at his father's side to become a part of his creation, to enter the world through the birth canal of a woman that he had created for the express purpose of redeeming rebels and sinners. And as we're transformed by that mercy, God will transform us. By the renewing of our minds, God will transform us. We've been shown extraordinary mercies by a God whose love for us surpasses our wildest imaginings. How can we limit our worship to our songs? Or even our prayers? Or even our Sundays? How can we not want our worship to be an expression of our lives? Every act, every word, every thought, seeking to draw attention to the God who showed us unimaginable mercy and kindness and grace. But you know what? Even our lives won't be enough. Only one life is. But that's a part of his mercy. We've been joined to that life. And through him, we offer worship which is perfectly and eternally acceptable to God the Father. A life that has been given to us as a gift for which we will forever be expressing our thanks. I'm going to finish by reading a prayer from the Valley of Vision. came across the Valley of Vision years ago. I don't even remember how, but I was so grateful I did. Because uh, sometimes you, what songs and written prayers help us do is they express things that we've thought about, had on our hearts, but never been able to put into words. We say, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, that, that's it. So this does that. It's called to be fit for God. Thou maker and sustainer of all things, day and night are yours. Heaven and earth declare your glory. But I creature of your power and bounty have sinned against you by resisting the dictates of conscience, the demands of your law, the calls of your gospel. Yet I live under the dispensation of a given hope. 
Deliver me from worldly dispositions, for I am born from above and bound for glory. May I view and long after holiness as the beauty and dignity of the soul. Let me never slumber, never lose my assurance, never fail to wear armor when passing through enemy land. Fit me for every scene and circumstance. Stay my mind upon you and turn my trials to blessings that they may draw out my gratitude and praise as I see their design and effects. Render my obedience to your will holy, natural, and delightful. Rectify all my principles by clear, consistent, and influential views of divine truth. Let me never undervalue or neglect any part of your revealed will. May I duly regard the doctrine and practice of the gospel, prizing its commands as well as its promises. Sanctify me in every relationship, every office, every transaction and condition of life, that if I prosper, I may not be unduly exalted, and if I suffer, I may not be overly sorrowful. Balance my mind in all varying circumstances and help me to cultivate a disposition that renders every duty a spiritual privilege. Thus, may I be content, be a glory to you, and an example to others. Father, we ask that by your mercy and grace, we would be just that, that we would be content as your beloved sons and daughters, they would, we would be an example to others through our lives, through our gratefulness, through our obedience, through our joy, and that we would be a glory to you, that we would be trophies of your grace, that it would be clear to everyone who knows us that were it not for your grace, were it not for your mercy, we would fall apart. There would be no will to sustain us. Because our will, apart from Christ, simply rebels against you. But you have changed us. You have bought us. You have redeemed us. You have ransomed us. You have purchased us. And we are yours. May our lives, as well as our songs, continually bring glory to you and the power of your spirit through Jesus Christ, our brother and our Savior. And we pray in his name. Amen.